When it comes to sustainability, you know, we don't want to win at that. If we're the only ones who win, we're all going to be worse off. So this is all about one of the reasons I enjoy speaking is kind of sharing the word and spreading the gospel and hoping to get more people inspired and engaged. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. This is John Fiella, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. Today, we're sharing a keynote from our recent Renewable Energy Forum featuring Jeff Blankman, Sustainable Manufacturing Manager at McCormick & Company. He's also an advisory board member for Smart Energy Decisions. Jeff's keynote addresses McCormick's all-of-the-above sustainability strategy. And this presentation really embodies the essence of the extremely unique corporate buyer presentations that are only found at SED events. In fact, if you're interested in joining us at one of our future events, please just check the links in the show notes of this episode. Let's dive right in. Here's Jeff Blankman. Well, thanks for the intro and thanks for having me here, John. I always enjoy the opportunity to speak about what we're doing at McCormick to promote our sustainability program and reduce our impacts on the environment. So I'll I'll kind of jump to the punchline. The reason we have an all-of-the-above strategy is because you'll see in the presentation that no one method of reducing greenhouse gases is really going to get us to where we need to go. So we have to take a a multi-pronged approach. So a lot of people know the name McCormick. They think about that, the the pepper, the vinyl extract you buy at the food store. But we do a lot of other things besides just the the retail spices. So here's some of our brands that we own, Lowry's Seasoning Salt, French's Mustard, Frank's Red Hot. Those are all... Franks and French's relatively recent acquisitions have been really profitable for us and are growing. And then we also have industrial business, too, where we sell to other food manufacturers. We have a pretty well-developed sustainability program. We call it our purpose-led performance program, and it's actually a big umbrella. It's not just the, the environmental sustainability in the planet. It incorporates the people side of things. It incorporates community. So we have been recognized by a lot of external ranking companies for our performance. Corporate Knights uh, named us the number one food company for sustainability. We've been recognized by, it says here, Prince Charles. It's now King Charles for our efforts over in Europe. Every other year, it's coming up again in 2023, we put out a corporate sustainability report where we publicize all, the, all our metrics on sustainability, again, on the people, planet, and community side. So I was on a call just about six weeks ago with our Chief Sustainability Officer, and the thing he said there at the bottom resonated with me. It's that if we're the only ones that reach our sustainability goal, we failed. So, you know, sustainability, we want to beat our comp- all our competition at what we do, but when it comes to sustainability, you know, we don't want to win at that. If we're the only ones who win, we're all going to be worse off. So this is all about one of the reasons I enjoy speaking is kind of sharing the word and spreading the gospel and hoping to get more people and inspired and engaged. So I mentioned that we have this big umbrella purpose-led performance program. This is all our series of planet goals. The ones that I'm involved with and the ones I'm going to talk about today are, you know, just more specific to renewable energy is our goal to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, scope one and scope two, by 42% by 2030. And we'll get into each of the different strategies we're, 
we're doing to, to accomplish that. And then we also have a longer term commitment to a net zero goal by 2050. So I know when it comes to goal setting, there's classes, there's books, you can spend days learning about goal setting and smart goals and making sure they're realistic and achievable. And well, you know, when it comes to climate change, that kind of all goes out the window because we, we're doing what the planet's dictating. We're following the science-based goals. So these goals are being, you know, sort of imposed on us by the planet, the limitations of the planet. I can't go complain to the CEO that he gave us a goal that's not realistic. And I mentioned that science-based target. When you quantify it, that works out to a 42% reduction by 2030. We had a conversation in the peer-to-peer -peer session earlier about how tight to the chest some companies hold their data and, and commitments. So we do publicize our results, but we have not publicized our 2021 results yet to show how we did since we set our new goals in 2020. I can tell you that we're doing very well and we're well on track to hit the 40% goal, but I won't be able to tell you until the net zero form exactly what that number is. It'll be coming out with uh, our next iteration of the corporate sustainability report in the spring, and that'll have our performance through, through last year and also through this year. And I also wanted to take one minute to talk about the actual science-based target. I talked to a lot of people, and they hear that 1.5 degree C number, and they don't know what that means. Oh, you're going to reduce the temperature by 1.5 C, and it's, that's not actually what the science-based target is. The science-based target is to limit the amount of warming to only 1.5 C, and that 1.5 C baseline goes back to pre-industrial times. So some kind of facts about that, which are a little alarming, and show how much work we have to do. Temperatures have already rised 1.1 degrees towards that 1.5 target. So we don't have much window left. In 2015, Paris Agreement, that's when they were establishing the, you know, whether we shoot for a limiting the temperature increase to 2 degrees or 1.5. They settled on a firm 2 degree Celsius rise but they were sort of encouraging that 1.5 is probably a better target. So that's what was signed on to, and there were a lot of pledges made. But if you actually add up all the pledges that were made and they were implemented, the modeling would show that the temperature rise would still be 2.7 degrees C. So while there was a global agreement that 2 degree rise was what we need to limit it to, we didn't actually have a plan in place to get there. So there's a lot of work left to do. And then, by the way, no one's on track to actually even hit the pledges they made to limit the rise to 2.7 degrees. Then you fast forward to 2021 at the COP26 meeting in Glasgow last year, and they had thrown out in 2015 that 1.5 number. One Last year, they kind of firmed up that, no, the two degrees of warming is too much. We really need to hit 1.5. So that was an you know, updated pledges. Some more companies committed, and they did the math and modeled it and said, okay, instead of a 2.7 degree rise, now we, could, we would limit the rise to only 2.4, which is still far short. And again, by the way, no one's on track to meet any of those pledges. There's a lot of work left to do. One other thing, though, it's easy just to give up then and say, well, why are we bothering? We're not going to hit 1.5. There's not an actual cliff you're going to go over if, if we don't hit 1.5 or 2.0. It's just the higher the rise, the more severe the consequences. So the, the 1.5 or 2.0, either way, we got to do everything we can to reduce emissions. There's an update to that from the conference that just happened in Egypt. And from what I hear from that conference, there was a lot of discussion around how you would compensate some developing countries and countries are, that are more hurt by climate change. And there was less of a focus on additional pledges. I think that was one of the shortfalls was you would hope there'd be more and more pledges every conference and that that was actually a little light this year. So I think there was some disappointment there. There wasn't more activity around driving further reductions. So getting into the specifics of how McCormick addresses our greenhouse gas reduction goals, we see five primary methods for reducing greenhouse gases. And we do look at them as a hierarchy of what order we would like to do them. And so these are in order as you see them. And I'll go over each one in a little more detail. 
So energy efficiency, that's the starting point. I've been involved in energy efficiencies well before renewable energy was even feasible. Started doing some lighting upgrades back in 2005, 2006. And the main takeaway on this page, the degree of reductions that are out there. I, I think energy efficiency is sort of glossed over a lot of times and is underestimated just how far you can get with, with it. You've got double-digit opportunities for things like chillers for air conditioning or process chilling a load like where we are in manufacturing or um, you know, making compressed air, compressed air is like a workhorse in industry. They're notoriously inefficient systems, but there's big opportunities to, to increase your efficiency of compressed air systems. And then the other one on here in particular I wanted to highlight. So we have mechanical rooms in our plants where we've got all the different utilities, compressed air, a chiller for making cold water for cooling, got steam generators, hot water heaters. So we got a compressed air system that makes about 75% of the electricity that goes in that compressor is waste heat, and only 25% is actually usable air. So we're trying to get rid of that heat and get it out of the building. And right across the highway in that same room, we've got a hot water heater burning natural gas to make heat. So we have in several plants, this is an air compressor here, and this is a storage tank, and then these are hot water heaters. So we are capturing the waste heat off of the air compressors and storing it in a tank, and then using that for like our changeovers and other places where we need hot water. So we've cut the natural gas bill for the hot water heater significantly. We probably make 80, 90% of our heat for free, and then 10, 20% is what the hot water heaters have to use. One thing that's interesting is that I call it free. It's free being energy free. That tank right there is a food grade insulated stainless steel tank. It costs about $200,000. So it's anything but free, but it's energy free. And this list is actually, I had to shorten this list. I was, I was two or three bullets down off the page. I, I cleaned up this list. But there's just, the point is there's so many opportunities for energy efficiency. And if you really are managing a plant with energy efficiency in mind, you can go a long way, particularly towards that first 40% reduction goal we have. To get to net zero, obviously, you're not going to get to zero with energy efficiency. But you can go a long way. So after looking at energy efficiency opportunities, then we look at on-site solar. So, you know, when I tell friends that I work in sustainability, first thing they think is, oh, you put solar panels on your roofs. I mean, that's what people think of when they think of sustainability. They don't know anything about chillers or air compressors or other things, buying recs. They don't know what a rec is. They just think I put solar panels on roofs. That's our sustainability program. They're very tangible projects. They're, they're kind of sexy when pictures compared to like a picture of an air compressor. I had a um, professor in college. I took a solar energy class and he's, he was very clear. He said, solar energy will never be commercially viable. It'll be something you see hobbyists will do it. You might see it in a developing country on a medical facility where it's a life or death matter, but it is so expensive, you're never going to see solar energy. For years, I've been thinking I'm going to take these pictures and forward and look that guy up and forward them to him. The subject can will be like, how you like me now? But um, I haven't gotten around to doing that yet. So again, on-site solar, it's great use of your space. You, know, you already got a roof. You're in an industrial area, at least for us, you know, being manufacturing. It could be a parking lot. So you're making double use of, of your space. It's, you know, with distributed generation, there's a lot of benefits to that. You're not taxing the electric grid or you're actually taking demand off of the grid. You're avoiding the transmission losses that you see on the grid. So there's a lot of advantages to on-site renewables. We've had some projects based on local incentives where they've been nice money savers for us. In other areas, that's not feasible because there aren't local incentives. So that's, that's one of the limitations. I mean, some of the other limitations too, besides cost, depending on the local incentives, are you might have a roof that's in bad shape. You might be in a leased building and then now you get your landlord involved. Or if you're looking to do a PPA and it's a 15-year PPA and you only got five years left on your lease, so it's not feasible. So we have a lot of buildings without solar as well, even though we do have a handful of on-site arrays. So it's not always going to work out. 
We also have some size limits. We're looking at a very large building right now in Maryland where we're beyond the net metering limit set in the state of Maryland. So we're looking at what are opportunities there. Again, this isn't a, it's not going to solve all your problems to put on-site renewables. So then we look at the off-site options. We have two projects with off-site renewables. These are by far our biggest greenhouse gas reduction opportunities or, or impact. Just the scale you can get with being off-site much larger than you can do with, with, a, with a rooftop. So we've got a project, the top picture there. This is outside of Richmond, Virginia. It's our project Skipjack. We, along with Johns Hopkins and TJ Maxx, are the off-takers of all the production of that array. And this replaces our retail electricity purchase contract. So we're getting 100% renewable electricity for four of our plants and our corporate headquarters. Big impact. We have another project. It's actually under construction, but it'll power our Dallas plant. Another, you know, another big impact, 100% renewable electricity. So you're taking scope two all the way down to zero. So these are what's going to drive the results that we're going to publicize in the spring. Some of the limitations, though, are from a regulatory point of view, this kind of structure my understanding is it's only available in ERCOT and PJM. So we happen to be fortunate that our corporate headquarters and four plants are in the PJM territory. If not for that, you know, we'd have a lot more work to do trying to find something equivalent to this in a way of, of uh, reductions. Other concerns are some land use concerns. I was actually on a call this morning with the Maryland Energy Administration. We were talking about a potential community solar project. And not that it wasn't going to be allowed, but his, you know, his first question was, is this on farmland? And I'm like, well, no, this is on a manufacturing site roof. He's like, well, that's great. That's what we like to hear. There's apparently a lot of concerns about how much land is going to be taken for these large-scale projects. Now, if you compare that to a coal mine, uh, you know, a mountaintop coal mine, I think this is better. But even so, there's legitimate concerns about how much land are we going to take up to make renewable energy. So again, there's a limitation or a concern. After those top three in the hierarchy, the energy efficiency, on-site renewable, and off-site renewable, in which we all you know, kind of rate those as green, the next level of reduction would be your unbundled renewable energy credits. So we have bought renewable energy credits. We know they're a completely legitimate option. They're recognized you know, in the Carbon Disclosure Project by EPA and all the different third-party certifications. They do assign a price for carbon, which is a positive thing, and creates a carbon market. So there's a lot of benefits to, to the RECs, but we still see that in our minds as like the last mile option. Um, we would rather be getting real reductions at our sites or with the offsite if it's, if it's a bundled uh, electricity purchase than going with RECs. And you know, the reason for that is, of course, with the RECs, you know, you're not getting any additionality. We could buy a REC this year and have a really nice reduction and promote it to all our customers and put out a nice fancy CSR report, and then next year we just don't buy them. And so you don't get that additionality. It's, it's not, not a lasting impact. If you do need to do it, then you're going to have to make that financial commitment every year, which could be a problem depending on where REC prices are. So that there's concerns there. And then kind of my, my biggest issue with the RECs is that you know, they don't actually represent a true reduction. The reduction has already occurred in the past, and someone else credit for it's kind of hanging out there, and we're just taking credit for it. So we're transferring the reduction claim from someone else to us, but uh, uh, in the physics of the atmosphere, nothing changed. The final thing that I've seen from people who aren't maybe as passionate about sustainability is you can, if rec prices are low, it's an easy shortcut to avoiding some other projects that might be a little more difficult. So, you know, why would you put in a CHP project that's going to involve millions of dollars of equipment and disrupt your plant and need downtime when you can just spend $50,000 on RECs and you're done and not have to make that big investment? So it's kind of a perverse incentive there that if the RECs are too easy 
and too cheap and, and too available that it's going to distract you from doing the real work. So I have that concern. Now, I think as more companies get closer and closer to some of their 2025 and 2030 renewable energy targets, it seems to me like there's going to be a big rush on RECs at some point and the prices will go up. And then, and then when that happens, it goes back to these benefits above that having that price on carbon could be a positive thing to, to drive further on-site improvements to avoid the, the cost of the RECs. But for right now, I'm not seeing that. The RECs are an e- kind of an easy way out. Final category I have here is the, the virtual PPAs. I've seen some of these projects written up, and the scale of them is pretty impressive. And I like the additionality that you're actually investing in them. For us, as a relatively small energy user, you know, this, this is not something right now that's on the table for us as an option. We're not big enough to drive a huge VPPA. And just the, uh, we're also not energy managers, we're a spice company. We don't buy enough energy that we have a well developed energy team that's educated about energy issues. So to them, that, you know, I started to talk about this with some finance guys and they shooed me out of the room after about five minutes. Like this was kind of a non starter talking about contract for differences and all those options. So it's on the table as an option later for getting near 2030. And for some reason, we're, maybe we're falling short and wrecks are expensive. Maybe we would revisit it. But at this time, I would say this really isn't a viable option unless things change. One more comment I do want to make, because I know I, I did leave out a lot of talk around scope one and, and renewable natural gas and things like that. So I know that exists. Uh, it's just, you know, in our view, it's, it's, you know, I think it's fair to say that the renewable natural gas options are very limited compared to electricity. So, you know, it's something we might consider, but I think in the big picture, keeping this focused on electricity is, is kind of appropriate for now until things get a little further along with natural gas and the supply increases. Thanks, Jeff, for your keynote presentation and for all of your support of smart energy decisions and our work as a member of our advisory board. We look forward to following you and McCormick's journey in the future. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for listening to Smart Energy Voices and being part of our community. If you enjoyed this episode of Smart Energy Voices, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. And to learn about how you can become a part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're honored to have the opportunity to share conversations with leaders of the energy transition in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.